0: It's good to be here once
1: again, my wife and I always enjoy the opportunity to be with you, even if I get a text on Saturday morning saying,
0: please help.
1: Uh, (laughs) I was more than happy to help John, and I'm glad of the opportunity to be here, and I'm glad of my friendship with him, and that he uh, knows that he can call on me uh, when he needs to. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to take it and turn with me to the book of Romans and to the 15th chapter, Romans chapter 15. I'd like to look with you this morning at the first 13 verses of Romans chapter 15. And as we look we'll read these verses uh, in just a minute here, but as we're looking at them, just so you have a, an idea of where we're going, I'd like to look at Romans 15 under three separate headings. In the first seven verses, I want to consider the hope of loving my neighbor. In the second place, I want to look at the hope of Jesus loving me. And in the third, I want to look at uh, the hope. Of God that fills me, the hope of loving God, my neighbor. In the first seven verses, the hope of Jesus loving me. In verses eight through twelve, and then the very end, the hope of God that fills me in verse thirteen. We'll follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Romans 15, beginning at verse one. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And gracious Heavenly Father, I ask that now as we come to consider your word, we would continue in worship of you, we would continue to focus on your word and what you would say to us. We would continue to recognize the authority of our Savior Jesus Christ and what you have written for us here. I pray, Father, that you would take away any distraction, any impediment, that we would be able to focus solely on the work of your Spirit in these moments. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Romans chapter 15 is, of course, not just coming out of nowhere. There is a context for it. And if you know anything about the book of Romans, or if you've taken a peek back at Romans chapter 14, you will see there that in Romans chapter 14, Paul has started to address the the Roman church there, the believers, uh, about the issue between weaker brothers or weaker Christians and stronger Christians, those who are weaker in the faith and stronger in the faith. And those who are weaker believers, those who are weaker in the faith, according to Paul, are those who are unaware of their freedoms, unaware that Christ has freed them, in certain ways, and the two ways in particular in which Paul is that Paul is addressing here, in which believers have been set free, are having to do with food laws and the Old Testament calendar, Old Testament perhaps feast days. Who knows? But there's a sense of the all days are now uh, equal under Christ. Weak believers have stu- have held on held on to the idea that no, I can only eat certain foods. I can't eat these ones. I can't eat these ones according to the Mosaic pattern. And we must keep these feast days and these festivals according to the Mosaic pattern. But strong believers are those who recognize that in Christ they have indeed been set free. And they can eat all things. We know, for example, in the book of Acts in the 10th chapter, and then it's repeated again in the 11th chapter, as though to make sure that we understand this, that Peter, if you recall, had that vision where he was up on, the, on his roof, and <clears throat> he fell asleep, and he, he had a dream or a vision in which God said to him, there was this big sheet that came down with all of these animals that were unclean, and, and God said to Peter, take and eat. And Peter said, no, Lord, I won't. No unclean thing has ever crossed my lips. And at this, this, he then, then had the vision again, and they had it a third time. At the end of that third time, some men were at his door and asked him to come and give, bring the gospel to a Gentile. And that's what Peter realized, and the church, largely made up of Jews at that stage, realized that in fact Christ had indeed fulfilled the law and fulfilled the Mosaic pattern, and in that way they were now free to eat anything at all. Jesus, likewise, had also redeemed every day as something that was for him. The problem, of course, in the Roman church in chapter 14 and into chapter 15 is that both the weaker brethren, those who had not yet appreciated their freedom in the gospel, and the stronger brethren, those who had indeed recognized their freedom in Christ, neither of them was loving their neighbor. Both of them were busy judging the other one. The stronger ones were saying to the weak, get with the program. And the weaker were saying to the strong, no, my conscience is telling me I cannot do this. And so there was was conflict there. And I am absolutely 100% sure that as you and I read Romans 15, and as we're now thinking about reflecting on Romans 14, I know without a doubt that all of you are thinking exactly the same thing that I was thinking as we read this. And that is you were thinking of the great meat mishap of 1522, weren't you? I know you were. It was there. It was you're thinking, yes this is just exactly the same thing. Now, just in case there's one person in our midst who doesn't know about the great meat mishap of 1522, let me enlighten that one person. 1522 is the time in Europe when the Reformation was taking place. Great names like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and so forth. There was one reformer whose name was Ulrich Zwingli, and he lived in Switzerland, and Zwingli was known for discipling young men and discipling students and so forth, and the way in which he discipled them was to tell them that we must go to the Word of God. It's okay if we receive the tradition from the church as long as that tradition from the church matches up with the Word of God. Everything, like the Bereans in the book of Acts, must be measured by the truth of the Word of God. So he taught them how to interpret the Bible. He taught them how to read the Bible. They applied these things. And it was, it was really quite a fantastic um, school that he essentially was running there, sort of informal discipleship school. Well, as they were doing this, it was the springtime, and as the, if, if, you've, uh, if you've not grown up in church or you don't come from a higher church uh, background, you, I don't know if you're aware, but there's in, in the springtime, the 40 days before Easter is usually referred to as Lent. And during the period of Lent, certainly in the late Middle Ages, the idea was that you had to fast for 40 days because you were showing God how sorrowful you were for your sins that led up to and necessitated the death of Christ for you for your sin, that you might be saved." Of course, Easter is also the celebration of the resurrection, his resurrection from the dead, as well as we just sung moments ago. Well, as, as Zwingli and his students were studying, they began to think, well, hold on a minute here. Lent, this 40-day period before Easter, where is that in the Bible? And they take their Bibles, and they start going through their Bibles, and they realize Lent isn't a thing. <laughs> it's not in the Bible. This is entirely man-made, which means we could choose to fast if we wanted to we could be part of lent if we wanted to but there's no requirement so what did they do one time when they came during lent to zwingli's house they brought a big sausage everyone else in the entire city is uh, is of zurich in switzerland is fasting and they slow cook this sausage beautifully and the smell not only passes through the house, but out the windows and down the street. And people who have been fasting from meat, because that's the main thing you fast from in Lent during the, the Middle Ages in Europe, the main, they're, 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 they've not had meat for who knows how many days it was. Oh. <laughs> and they're thinking, this is a problem. Who dares cook meat on the, in, in the period of Lent? And this caused quite a furor. And what ended up happening was that there was a big debate and all kinds of of trouble and so forth in the city of Zurich because on the one hand there were those who were saying, you have to fast from meat during Lent, and then there were these others who were saying, no, you don't. Show it to me in Scripture, and I'll absolutely do it. And what you have there are people who were, in essence, the same sort of thing going on here in the, in the, uh, the, uh, the Roman church during Paul's time. You have those who were, on the one hand, the stronger in faith and those who are weaker. The weaker in faith didn't realize the freedom they had in Christ. And there there were the stronger in faith who recognized, no, I I turned to Scripture. That is the guide for my life. That's where I find my obedience. And, And so I am free to do things like eat sausages during Lent. And so there was this conflict, and what we see here is that whether it's the Roman church in Paul's day, or whether it's Zurich in 1522, or whether it is 2023 in Phoenix, Arizona, so often it can be the case that weaker those weaker in faith and those stronger in faith are not loving one another, and that there is disunity, and they're not doing the thing they should be doing, which is fulfilling the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. So here, Paul is in the midst of this debate, in midst of this conversation, and when we come here to Romans chapter 15, he is telling people, you, you must love one another. And, and verse, the second half of verse 1 and verse 2 they tells us what that looks like. You'll notice Paul says there, he start, begins with, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. To build him up. So you see here that loving your neighbor, really it begins with the strong, as we'll note in just a minute here, but whether you're weak in faith or strong in faith, whatever your position, it begins with seeking to love the other. I would suggest to you that one way in which we can do this practically is when we come to somebody who disagrees with us um, over something and, and whatever it might be, some aspect of how we should live, and you think to yourself, well, I don't think that's something that's required of me in Scripture. You know, it may not be a bad thing, but it's not a requirement. You can't make me do this. And someone else is thinking, no, you really need to do this, whatever it may be. Both people should have at least this this one question, or this one statement, I suppose. Three words. Tell me more. See, when you come to somebody and they say, well, you should be doing this, you should be doing this, or you shouldn't be doing that, you shouldn't be doing that, why not, offer a, why, not, why not do what, what Paul is suggesting here? Instead of pleasing yourself, what would please you in that moment? To let them have it. To tell them what's what. But how could you please your neighbor? You sit down with your neighbor and you say, that's interesting that you should be telling me that I have to act in this way, or you think I should dress this way, or eat this food, or have this sausage, or not have this sausage. Who knows what it might be? But you sit down and you say... Tell me more. Why is it that you say that? I'm curious. And you have to, of course, be genuinely curious. Because when you do that, when you say those three little words, tell me more, you are putting yourself in a position of humility. You are asking them, in a sense, teach me, talk to me, tell me. Now, you may still end up disagreeing with them, and that's fine. But at the very beginning, you've at the very least started with the right posture. You've adopted a posture of humility. You've adopted the posture in which you are treating the other as more important. And the value for the one who is weak in faith would be eventually, hopefully, that they say, oh, you know, that's interesting. Now that you pointed out, there is nothing in Scripture that says I have to fast during Lent. I hadn't seen it that way before. And the value for the strong is that they have gained a brother or a sister in Christ. Now, I want to note here as well, as I mentioned just a moment ago, that the accent here, the emphasis here, is that this begins with the strong. Because sometimes you might say, well, okay, who's going to say it first? Tell me more. Tell me more. Who should go first? They have to go first, not me. Why should I always have to go first? Paul says here that the accent falls on the strong. He says in verse 1, we who are strong. Verse 2, let each one of us, meaning those who are strong in faith, who understand the scriptures, who are spiritually mature. So who should start loving their neighbor? It should begin, both should, of course, ideally, but it really should begin, if there's any question of where it starts, with the strong in faith. Why? Because the strong can carry the weak along. They can endure the weak. But let me say this. You cannot help the weak become strong until the weak have seen the strength of your love. You cannot help the weak become strong until the weak have seen the strength of your love. So often we assume when we disagree with those in the, in the body, we assume that the way in which the pe- we can bring someone along is by the strength of our persuasive power, the strength of our presence, the strength of our arguments, the strength of our logic. But so often what matters most is that somebody see the strength of your genuine love for them. When they have seen your love, when they have seen your care, when they have seen your humility and the posture you adopt, that's when they are going to get somebody who wants to even listen to you. And of course, this is exactly what it means to follow in the footsteps of Christ. Because what do we read in Scripture of Christ?
0: He first loved us.
1: He first loved us. I think that's worthwhile noting. So often, I remember growing up, the emphasis when I learned that verse, uh, I grew up in the church, and so I grew up with Sunday school, we memorized parts of scripture and so forth. And I remember the emphasis always being, that he first loved us. And that's important. He was the one who took the initiative. He's the one who went ahead. He's the one who did this. But what if you put the emphasis on love? He first loved us. In other words, the first thing he did was to demonstrate his love. Jesus didn't come and begin making arguments. Jesus came and he loved. What is the first miracle that he performed as is re- recorded in John's gospel? He's at a wedding, at the end of the wedding. They've run out of wine. What does Jesus do? He supplies the need. He demonstrates love for the, 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 the groom who would have been terribly embarrassed along with his family that he hadn't supplied enough. Maybe he couldn't afford it. He shows them love by engaging with them and and supplying what they need at that moment and and, and rejoicing with them. The very first thing we read of Christ doing is that he actually demonstrates love. And of course, it's not just the wedding at Cana where we see this the most, but if you look at the second part of verse three, you'll see the, the love that we really, really should pay attention to. As it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is a quote from a psalm, but this is a quote that is a messianic psalm. It is a psalm about Christ. It is a psalm about Jesus. And the manner in which he first loved you is to take all of your reproach, all of your guilt, all of your sin upon himself in the most supreme act of love throughout all time. In other words, Christ's love bore everything for you. And the degree and depth to which you understand Christ's love for you, his undeserved initiating love for you, is the degree and depth to which you will love others in the church. If you struggle to love other believers in this congregation, in this very place, I'd ask you to consider the fact that you might struggle to love them because you have struggled to actually understand the depth of the love that Christ has already offered to you. So often in self righteousness, we can say to one another, oh, well, uh, you know, and, and we put someone down because we're busy being self righteous and we don't realize that, no, 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 I'm the one who's got the problem here. I'm the self righteous one. I'm lifting myself up. I'm not in a place of, of humility because I don't understand the depth that was required. Of Christ to save me in that incredible act of love on the cross. And that is the hope that Paul has in mind here as we think of the hope of loving my neighbor. That before Christ, you were, of course, without hope, but because of Christ, you now have hope. And that hope is not only for personal salvation, but also, as we see in verse 5, it is a hope for harmony in the wider body of Christ. Verse 5 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. This is all based, verse 4, on the encouragement of the Scriptures that gives us hope. So hope for the church comes by loving my neighbor as myself. That's the first thing that Paul wants to point out here, the hope of loving my neighbor, the opportunities, what will come of this because we put the other first, because we don't make demands of others, because we are willing to enter into a posture of humility, and because we are willing to use three little words all the time, tell me more. That's the first thing we see here, the hope of loving my neighbor. The second thing we see in verses 8 through 12 is the hope of Jesus loving me. I don't know about you, but I found verses eight and nine rather jarring. They just somehow they didn't seem to fit. I mean, here we have uh, Paul talking in verse uh, chapters, uh, chapter 15 following on chapter 14. He's, he's addressing still those who are dealing with weaker and stronger faith and, and food laws and, and the Mosaic calendar and all these sorts of things. And then out of nowhere, verses eight and nine, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is to Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Well, hold on, Paul. I thought we were talking about food laws and all this sort of stuff, and now you're talking about Jews and Gentiles? So it's initially, I think, at least jarring. Maybe I'm the only one, just as I was probably the only one who thought of the great meat mishap of 1522, but that's okay. I stand alone. That's all right. What is he doing here? Well, he's actually tying two things together. These things come together. Why? Because whether it's weak and strong in faith, or it's Jew and Gentile relations, which is probably in the the Roman church what's underlying the meat question, the eating, what's appropriate to eat, and what days, and Mosaic law, and so forth, you probably have in the Roman church at base, on the one hand, the Gentile Christians who are saying we're free to eat, And we're free to do what we want on these different days of the week. And you have the Jewish believers who are saying, well, no, we're not not comfortable with that. We need need to maintain a mosaic pattern of life. So these things actually come together probably on the basis of that that reasoning. But you'll see that both things, whether people are dividing themselves over over, uh, weak and strong faith, over what you eat and don't eat, or what you do on this day and what you don't do on this day, or whether it's along the lines of Jew and Gentile, all of this threatens the unity of the church, because both things are first and foremost rooted in self-first, self-interest. I think it's interesting to me as, as, uh, as I reflected on this passage, I also reflected on the fact that there are a number of friends that I have across the country who are themselves trying to find a church for different reasons. And as they're trying to find a church, I've been asking them, so tell me about you know Sunday by Sunday, tell me, tell me what churches you found, tell me what you've discovered, hope you find one soon, all the rest of it. And it's amazing how often they've discovered that in churches, there's not really a warm welcome. Because people are too busy trying to figure out, are you like me or not like me? And if you're not like me, goodbye. And if you're like me or like us, Then you're welcome. But there's a very strange sense of this sort of, this sort of, this, this divide, as it were. In other words, they're rooted in self-interest. We have the way we do church. We have the way we think about life. We have the way we believe. We have the way that we operate. And you need to, to figure out how to fit into that. You've got to do that work, not us. It's interesting how that divides and alienates people rather than draws them, drawing them in i think that that paul noted these things that this relationship between jew and gentile and and the relationship to christ also because it's a way of pointing out in a supreme fashion that all things have been resolved by christ how again note the the humility for i tell you that christ became a servant verse 8 christ became a servant and in becoming a servant verse 3 he took the reproach of all upon himself. You see, and by, by doing that, he became a servant. On the, that's the, the key idea there, that Christ became a servant. He did he became a servant, first of all, to the Jews, to the circumcised, that he might show the fulfillment of all that God had promised in Scripture. But also it's by excuse me, by becoming a servant. And he was able to reach the Gentiles who then might also be added to the people of God and glorify him all the more. And then Paul goes on and has a list of texts from the Old Testament where he is saying again and again and again, don't miss the point. Jesus became a servant for both Jew and Gentile. Jesus became a servant so that he might save those who are, yes, at this point, weak in faith, but also those who are strong in faith. He came to draw all to himself so that all might praise him together. And I think here it's worth pausing for just a few minutes and considering Jesus' love as it's shown to the Jews and Jesus' love as it's shown to the Gentiles. After all, he became a servant, and we read here at the end of Romans, to the circumcised which resonates from the very first chapter of Romans where Paul talks about the fact that he came first for the Jew, not because the Jews are more important than everybody else, but because they ought to have got it more more easily than everyone else. You think about the gospel. It makes more sense to bring the gospel to somebody who knows the Old Testament because they know what to expect. When you bring the gospel to those who don't know the Old Testament, you've got to explain the whole thing before they get it. And so that's why Paul says at the beginning of Romans, to the Jew first and then the Gentile, to the one who was ready for it because they'd known the Old Testament, they knew the promises of God, and then to Gentiles. But what's interesting to me, if I may say this, is most, and I have no idea what goes on here uh, at Redeeming Grace in terms of missions, so don't, this is not a comment on anything, this is me just reflecting on my own. But most churches I know that support missions, those missions are actually very Gentile-focused. It's amazing how many churches I've visited, how many churches I've preached, and how many churches I know where they don't have a single outreach to Jews. And you may say, well, but why would we need that? I mean, we're sort of reaching everybody, hopefully. Well, it's worthwhile noting that Jews, that, that everyone, of course, you make an argument for every culture has its own uh, particular uh, biases and so forth, and therefore we should, you know, how, to, to what degree do we divide up missions? Well, it's worthwhile noting that Jews are in a very particular situation because of their relationship to the Old Testament, because of the way in which they're actually raised and so forth. Let me give you an example. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. You may be aware of this, but many Jews, especially those who are devout, those who are practicing Jews, um, are told early on that the New Testament should not be read. In fact, depending on how deeply into Judaism you go, the New Testament should not be read, should never be read, because it's a book that describes persecution against the Jews. Now, if you've read the New Testament, that might surprise you, but that's what they're taught. They're also taught, then forbidden to read the New Testament, why? Because it's a book for Gentiles. It has nothing to do with the Jews. Furthermore, when people ask, but isn't it about Jesus? The answer is yes, and Jesus is a Gentile. So he's not one of us. He's not one of ours, so it's about persecution, and it's about Gentiles, it has nothing to do with us. This came home to me, I've, I've had friends who've, who've been telling me this for years, who, are, who have ministries to, uh, to, to Jews and so forth. But there is one minister, a ministry called One for Israel, which has put out countless videos. You can go see them on YouTube. Not now, don't get your phones out. Just make a note, go see it later this afternoon. But they've done countless videos. But a number of things that they did for years, would they, they would have somebody just sitting in a chair in a very sort of a nondescript place, and the person would just tell their testimony. And the testimonies take about five to seven minutes. So it's great. You can watch all, all sorts of these things. And this is what you hear again and again and again. Don't read the New Testament. Jesus is not a Jew. Jesus is all about persecution. Again and again and again. But there was one testimony that stuck out to me above all the others. And this man is, was raised in New York City, and he had the accent. It was fantastic. And there he's talking about being raised, and he was told early on by his grandparents and by his rabbi, don't read the New Testament, which he said, when you're a small child, sure, fine. You know, your parents say, don't touch. Okay, we're not going to do it. He said, but then you get to high school, and don't means do. Somehow it changes. We're not sure how. But at any rate, he was there, and he said, I was at school, and of course it was don't, 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 and he was in the public school system. So so he decided one day, he was in the library, and he he decided, you're not going to find out this New Testament thing, because there's one on the shelf. And so he said, I went into the library, and he said, I looked this way, and I looked that, because I didn't want any of my friends seeing me. I reached up on the shelf, and I took out this book, and I look in it, and I get to the New Testament, and I started reading. And he said, what's the first thing you read in the New Testament? Of course, it's the Gospel of Matthew. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus stretching back through Abraham, versus David and Abraham. And he said, I actually had to stand there for a second, stunned by the fact that if anyone's Jewish, it's Jesus. This was a revelation to him. I mean, he can tie his his lineage all the way back to Abraham. This is where it started. This was mind-blowing to him. So he carries on reading and reading and reading. Long story short, he becomes a believer. But this is a problem because he's in an observant Jewish home. He can't tell anyone. So he goes on for a while until eventually he he, he just can't can't hold it in anymore. And so he goes to his dad and he says, dad, well, he calls him Pop. He's from New York. So he's Pop. (laughs) <laughs> I got to tell you, I'm a Christian. His dad is, of course, alarmed and sort of looking at him. His dad says he wasn't sure how his dad was, would respond. It's entirely possible he would have been thrown out of the home. His dad just said, I'll tell you what, let's keep that between you and me. <laughs> Don't tell anyone else, especially your mother. <laughs> so he figures, okay, fine. So he goes on. Well, anyway. His dad thought, well, if my son's involved in this, I need to know what kind of weirdness he's involved in. So his dad takes out finds a Bible, and his dad starts reading. And he knows his dad is reading. His dad says, I just want to find out what you're into. So he's reading the New Testament. His dad starts reading all these other books. Well, one of the books that his dad was reading, written by a particular author, that author happened to be in New York City and was going to be giving an address. So he went to his dad, and he said to his dad, hey, Pop, you know, there's that book you've been reading that that author's actually speaking. I was going to go. And I don't know if you want to go. And his dad said, yeah, sure, I'll go. So they go, and they go and listen. And there comes a point in the, in, the, in, the, in the address, as this man, I don't know who it was, he doesn't name the guy, but whoever it was is giving this address, and he says, I'd like for all of you who are believing Jews to raise your hand. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and the Messiah, and you have, and you have repented of your sins, and you are trusting in his death and resurrection. And then all these hands go up, not everyone's, but all these hands go up, and, and this young man puts his hand up, and he looks around, and his dad has his hand up, and he leans over and he says, Pop! He asked all the Jews who believe in Jesus to raise their hands. He didn't say all Jews. And his dad looks at him and says, I know. And it's just an incredible moment when a man who was raised, because he was raised by the very same parents who were the grandparents to this young man who had told him never, ever, ever read the New Testament because it's about persecution against the Jews and Jesus is a Gentile and it's it's not for us. And yet all they had to do was open it up and amazed. It's absolutely stunning to me that so many, people, so many Jews are being raised in this environment, unbelieving Jews are raised in this environment, where they are actively told, do not read. There's a reason why we should be thinking about what does it look like to reach out to our Jewish neighbors? What does it mean to help them see the truth of who Jesus is? Jesus became a servant so that exactly these people would believe. But we also see that Jesus' love is shown to the Gentiles, verses 9 and following. After all, he says he became a servant. Why? In order, verse 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God in this mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. Verse 12, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And what I love about that, very briefly, is that the foundation of evangelism is Jesus becoming a servant, and the motivation for evangelism is the glory of God. I'll say that again. The foundation of evangelism is Jesus becoming a servant, that he might indeed die and rise again for our salvation. That is the foundation of evangelism. But the motivation for evangelism, the motivation for evangelism is the glory of God. And when the motivation is the glory of God, then evangelism begins exactly where you are and and what you're doing. And when you grasp this, you will see
0: that concern for the lost is an
1: obligation, not an option but it is an obligation to God's glory. So often when we think of evangelism, when we think of sharing the gospel with our neighbor, we're nervous. Just about everybody in here is. I'll be the first one to raise my hand. It can be nerve-wracking because you have no idea what the person's going to say. They may yell at you. They may hate you. I've had people do this. This is not fun. But they've also had people who are, really? And then they say those three little beautiful words to me, tell me more. But you see, if I'm I'm out there and I'm evangelizing just because I feel I'm forced to, guilt trip, that's one way to approach it, not the best way. But if I am consumed with the glory of God and I'm actually reaching out to my neighbor to know Jesus, why? Because I want his voice or her voice to be added to all the collection of voices giving praise and glory and honor to God, that's altogether different. I'm only here at your doorstep. I'm only here at the the backyard barbecue. I'm only here talking to you at the water cooler. I'm only here at lunch or coffee with you. Why? Because of the glory of God that consumes me, and he is so wonderful and gracious and kind. I cannot help but tell you. And then they begin to see something entirely different. You see, I think here what Paul is getting at in Romans 15 is that Paul felt the pain of unbelievers perishing, but he was driven by the glory of God. This is not guilt-trip evangelism, this is glory evangelism. And you see, when you understand that Jesus has loved me, that I might participate in his glory, then indeed the hope of Jesus loving me is seen, because not only do I have hope in what he has done for me, but I can't wait to tell others. So that Jesus loving me is something that
0: translates
1: into hope for all to believe. Well, we've seen the hope of loving my neighbor in verses 1 through 7, and the hope of, loving Je- of Jesus loving me, whether Jew or Gentile, in verses 8 through 12. And then finally, verse 13, we see the hope of God that fills me. What a final verse this is, isn't it? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You may wonder, what is the meaning of to abound in hope? That's kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? It's a rare phrase, actually, in the Bible. Some people have asked, does this mean abound in hope for the present of church, that there might be unity in the church, because that's, contextually, that's what Paul's been talking about, disunity over what you can eat or can't eat, and what mosaic patterns you should follow or not follow. So maybe it's just hope for peace in the church and unity in church today. But others have said, well, no, I don't think it's about that. I think it's hope for the future, the new creation, heaven on earth, that's Jesus coming again, the rest of, of, of history after all of that. So which is it? And the answer is, of course, yes. It is both. We indeed hope have a hope in the present because of what we know is the future and because it's happened in the past. The resurrection of the past, if I could put it this way, the resurrection in the past guarantees our hope for the future, even as that hope begins its inbreaking now in the church. So the hope that we have should fill us not only about the wondrous future that we have, but also about the present and what it can change here and now. So that now we have hope for the weak made strong in faith. We have hope that we will seek to please our neighbors for their good rather than seeking our own good. We have hope that all might be built up in the Lord. We have hope that we will glorify God with one voice together. And we have hope that our unity will draw others to faith. As I thought about this hope, I thought about a story that my wife alerted me to some time ago about a missionary named Darlene in 1937. In 1937, Darlene and her husband decided that they were going to go and be missionaries on a Pacific island. Well, they went in 1937, but as you know, if you remember your history, it wasn't too long before World War II starts. And there they are on a Pacific island in World War II, The Japanese got involved, and the Japanese went through all these Pacific islands, rounding up anyone they thought was the enemy and charging them with espionage. So she and her husband were rounded up as American citizens. They were rounded up thinking, ah, you're part of the enemy, you're you're spies. And so they arrested them both. The last time she ever saw her husband was on the back of a truck as he was going away. And she was left alone. She herself was put in a prison with other women. And she was in that prison for a very long time charged with espionage. It was troubling. It was challenging. It was difficult. They gave them to eat some kind sort of weird gruel that basically did not nourish them correctly or properly. So over time, she is growing emaciated. Over time, she is growing weak. And all the while, she is seeking to, to pray to the Lord, to, to intercede uh, at, at the throne of grace, to seek that he might let her go, to give her hope. She's sharing her faith with whoever she can in the prison. But it's getting worse, not better, worse, not better, worse, not better. One day, she's out, the, the, the prison she was in at least was nice enough that they, they gave them a time each day when they could go out and walk around in the, in the ground or whatever. And it's really weird because there was, on one side there was this wall, or she assumed there was a wall, whatever it was, and, but it was all overgrown with, I don't know, kudzu or something, but you know those vines that just keep growing and growing and growing. So you can't really see the wall. And this one prisoner, who happened to be a native of, the, of that particular part of the world was not an American. That prisoner slowly is walking along and making her way over to the wall. And so Darlene is intrigued by this, she keeps watching. Then, when, the, when that lady gets close to the wall, out of nowhere, obviously somebody had, had figured out how to put a hole in the wall, a hand comes flying out with a banana at the end. And the person, this lady, she takes the banana. She hides it. Well, I think there may have been a few bananas, and she hides them all over her person, and then the hand disappears. <laughs> she just sort of nonchalantly walks along again, making sure that none of the guards see this. Well, Darlene is thinking about this thing. you think about it, she's been eating this horrible slop. She's emaciated. She's, she's starving. She's lost so much weight. She barely recognizes herself, and all she can, can begin to think about is bananas. <laughs> oh, for a banana. And she starts to pray, God, just one banana. And of course, she never got a banana, she kept getting slop. And she said, After a while, my hope that God was powerful enough to give me a banana in prison withered and faltered. I am praying, she admitted to in her biography, I am, or autobiography, I am praying. For something that God can't do—that's how bad it got. God can't get a banana into prison. Well, one day she's in her prison cell and she hears steps coming down the, the hallway and the jingling of the keys, and she knows, oh, that means the the uh, that the prison guard is there, and she's, oh, Ma, you know, what am I going to do? And she's so weak she can barely stand up, and so she stands up and she's there, and the the the, the door opens. And there's a lot more to the story I don't have time to tell you. But anyway, the guard comes in, along with one of the commanding officers who's over the whole region, including the prison. And they had known each other. There seems to have been some connection there. And they had known each other, and he was shocked at the sight of her because of the emaciation and and so forth. And he was absolutely, I mean, he he was angry that somebody should be treated like this. And he marches out almost immediately. And the, the, the guard closes the door, somewhat, you know, unsure what to do and locks it. And then she didn't understand their language, but they were going, I mean the, the, the senior officer was going at this prison guard like nothing else. He was clearly livid. Then she hears. Doo, 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 doo. She hadn't said anything. The whole time she's just standing there, and now she's left thinking, what in the world? So she sits back down on her bed and she's resting. Then sometime later, she hears the steps again steps of just one person, not two, the guard with his keys, he opens the door, and with disgust, he throws a box of, as she counted it later, 92 bananas into her cell, slams the door and locks it, and walks away. (laughs) She had never told a single soul that she wanted a banana. When the man who that she'd known from, from her previous life came in and was absolutely aghast at the way she was being treated, she never said it. She had no opportunity to say, I just want a banana. He didn't know. And a few hours later, 92 bananas are derived. And it's absolutely amazing because she said the first thing she did was not to eat a banana,
0: but she pushed them aside. And she fell to her knees. And she asked the Lord to forgive her because she had lost hope that in his sovereign purposes he could apply just a single banana. And he had proved to her again his immense love, his immense mercy, his immense power. He didn't need her to say anything.
1: He just needed her to know that he loved her. And one of the statements she made She said, I came to delight in abundance and the abundance of hope in God. I don't know where you are this morning. You may feel like you're in a prison. You may feel like you're trapped. You may feel like you've got nowhere to go, and you're thinking, really? And you're beginning to wane and falter in your hope. And you're not really sure, can God, really? Dot, dot, dot. I want you to remember Darlene in a prison at the beginning of World War II in 92 bananas. And as I finish here, I want to connect what we've just said with something even older. You may recall at the beginning of the service, we read through 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And I underlined it as we were reading it. Chapter, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, in your bulletin there in the verse 17. Jehoshaphat, where, where is where is he? He's in an impossible situation. He's surrounded. He's got no hope. He's outnumbered. Everything is going badly. The whole thing is falling apart. He has absolutely no way of winning this war. He is in his own way, trapped. He's in his own prison cell. He has no options. What does he do? He cries out to the Lord and he prays to the Lord. And how does the Lord answer? Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 17. You will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. The Lord will be with you. And the part that we didn't read, as you carry on reading the rest of chapter 20, you discover that they had to stand firm, but not a single soldier had to do anything. The Lord set them amongst each other. All of their enemies fought each other, turned on each other, and they were all killed. And all they had to do was stand there and watch the Lord at
0: work. Just like Darlene stood there in a prison cell
1: and watched the Lord work. So I want you to remember when you think of Romans chapter 15 and and when you're in that place where you're not sure, can I really hope in the Lord? What is he going to say to me? What should I do? How should I proceed? This is the God who fills you with what? Abundant hope. And when you wonder to yourself, well, what exactly again is abundant hope? Abundant hope is 92 bananas. Abundant hope is stand firm, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. I am with you. I go before you. And he does that because he loves you. He does that because he desires good for you. Even as, yes, he may take you through the valley of the shadow of death, which he took his son through. But you can fear no evil,
0: for he is with you, and he will never leave you nor
1: forsake you. So you see, there is the hope we get from loving our neighbor. There is the hope we get from knowing Jesus loves me, and all of that can only fill us abundantly with the hope of the love of God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to understand and see afresh this day what it is to be filled with abundant hope. I thank you, Father, though she has passed on into your presence, I thank you for the witness of Darlene to so many, her story is still being told. I thank you for the witness of Jehoshaphat who went before us thousands of years ago and whose story is still being told. Lord, I pray that we here this day might be a people who are faithful to you, and we rejoice in abundant hope that our stories might continue to be told, not for our glory, not for our honor, but for yours. Lord, I pray that you would move in hearts and minds, and Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who is in that dark place, oh Lord, we pray that you would fill them with hope. We pray that they would know your salvation. We pray that they would know your goodness. For all this and more, Lord, we give you thanks. In Christ's name, amen.